1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13. And there Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, before we get to this outline that's on that sermon notes page in your bulletin, let me take a couple of minutes to talk about the flow of chapter 1 and what's happening as we come to verse 13. You probably noticed it begins with therefore. Uh, you've heard that phrase before? When you see a therefore, find out what it's there for. You heard that phrase? You have now. If you haven't. And it's important. It really is an important phrase, uh, an important saying, um, because this word therefore is a transitional word. It holds hands with what came before and after. And, and here in First Peter, it tells us that there's a move from the indicative to the imperative. Now, you might not be familiar with those terms, but they're concepts which are easily understood, and they're concepts really which are very important to the Bible. It's a fundamental and frequent distinction in the Bible. So it's massively important for, for getting the gospel right in some ways, and for getting the Christian life right in some ways. And for getting Bible study right in many, many ways. The indicative is what is. The imperative is what should be. The indicative is description. And the imperative is prescription. The indicative is what God has done already. The imperative is what we should do in light of what he's already done. So in 1 Peter, we don't get a command, an imperative, until verse 13. Everything before has been indicative, description, what is, what God has done. All kinds of indicatives about God's grace. Remember, Peter writes to suffering Christians who were surprised by suffering, and he writes to encourage them and strengthen them in the gospel. So he begins by describing the gospel in a lot of different ways, describing God's plan, describing what he has done. So at the risk of redundancy, hopefully you're not getting sick of this, but let's review some of those things again. Look down your Bibles as I just point some things out. Remember that Peter writes that we're elect, we're chosen, we're foreknown by God in verses 1 and 2. He writes to tell them they've been cleansed by Jesus' blood. They've been set apart or sanctified by the Spirit unto obedience to the gospel. Verse 3 tells us they've been born again. We, Christians, have been born again because Jesus died and he was raised to new life. So we have a living hope, he says. A living hope because we have a living Savior. And we now have an inheritance in heaven that is unfading. It, it'll never perish. It'll never get defiled, verse 4 says. That inheritance is nothing less than God himself. Forget crowns or gold streets. We get God at the end. But that's not all here yet. It'll be fully revealed at the last time, Peter says, and until then, we rejoice because we're being kept or guarded by God's power, verse 5. Then he turns to suffering and he reminds them that their suffering has divine purposes. It has purifying purposes. 
That's better than gold. He reminds them that even though we don't yet see Jesus, we believe in him and we rejoice in him, verse 8. And then the last time we were in 1 Peter, we saw that chunk, verses 10, 11, and 12. There, Peter reminds them of the Old Testament and the promise and anticipation of the Messiah, the one to come. He writes to them to tell them he has come. The things that the prophets didn't quite get, he's come in suffering and in glory. We know this now. It's been preached to us. These things which angels long to peer into and to see unfold in time and space. These are these indicatives that I'm talking about. And only then does Peter then say, therefore, therefore, here's what you should do. Now here's why that distinction is so, so important for this passage and for so many others. Because we're an enormously practical, pragmatic people these days. We like, in some ways, being told what to do. Just tell me what to do. Just tell me how to do it. Tell me how to live, especially practical advice on how to live. And the vast majority of preaching in the church in the 21st century in America is all about this. Not just even what the Bible says we should do, but give me some practical insight into how you think I should do what the Bible says to do. Not just love your wife, but, but men, today, go home and buy your wife some flowers. We love that kind of ending to a sermon. Maybe for the wrong reasons. Maybe because it's kind of easy to do. It's clear whether we did it or not. Maybe because we're still trusting in our own righteousness that we love the do's. Oh, don't be mistaken. The Bible gets practical. The Bible gives us do's. It tells us how to live. But it always does so standing firmly on these indicatives. What he has done. What we do is because of what he's already done. And we can never forget it. We can never graduate from what he's already done. We never stop rehearsing it and just focus on what we do. And by the way, many of the imperatives or commands of the New Testament are less about actions and muscles and task lists or things you can check off a list. They're more things like the heart, how to think, how to feel. They're imperatives of the mind and the heart, like this one in verse 13. Hope. It's a command. Set your hope fully on the grace that's to be revealed in the coming of Jesus. That's the main verb of the passage, by, your, by the way. Set your hope fully. There's some stuff that came before. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. But the only real verb command in verse 13 is set your hope fully. Those ing words... Preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, they're what we call participles. And it tells us that these are ways in which we set our hope fully. They support and amplify that main verb. So hope is clearly the emphasis of this verse, like it was in verse 3. We've been born again to a living hope. We talked about that in weeks past. But let's remind ourselves again what hope is. Hope is this mixture 
of faith and joy and anticipation. It's never a hope-so kind of thing, like I hope we get to do a good vacation this year. It's a no-so kind of thing. It's a present experience, a feeling, a mindset. It's rooted in past realities and past promises, and it's anticipation, in anticipation of what's still to come. Hope is like a good memory, in a sense. A good memory, it's certain. You, you experienced it. You can recall it. It's yours. No one can take it away from you. You can call up this experience of the past, and it makes you feel good. Well, like a good memory looks backwards, hope looks forward. It looks forward to something just as certain as your good memory. It's something that's just as ours as your good memory. And it's a gaze forward that should bring us joy, much like the look backwards in a good memory. The opposite of hope is disappointment or disenchantment. We hope. And hope makes us happy. Proverbs says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. When hope doesn't come to fulfillment, that's not the kind of hope Peter's talking about here, but the hope so of Proverbs, when that doesn't happen, we're depressed, we're heartbroken, we're heavy, we're sad. But we have a hope that is not not canceled out. It's maybe deferred in one sense and that we wait, but that's not what Proverbs is talking about. Proverbs is talking about a hope so that didn't happen. And here Peter is giving us hope. Steadfast hope that looks ahead and isn't disappointed, and so there's no disenchantment. Instead, there's pure delight. Okay, now to the outline that I spoke about on the back of your sermon notes page, the back of the bulletin. You'll notice there, I think it's best if we work backwards in this passage and begin with Jesus' return. That's the first thing in your notes. The focus of hope here in verse 13 is Jesus' return. There's a specific thing that you set your hope in. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, at his revealing, at his second coming, his return. What do you think about when you think about Jesus' return? If you're not a Christian, you probably scoff at it. It seems so unscientific, so archaic, so silly. Like what? Jesus is going to show up? He's just going to, really? He's going to show up? He's going to change everything? Really? Doesn't seem to make sense. But you know, if he came once, we Christians believe he's coming again. And I tell you what, I look around and I think there's got to be something else. Hopefully it's not just this continual cycle of, of people living and dying and then going to heaven or hell, whatever. But I mean, certainly he's going to do something more than this, isn't he? But do we ever think about it? Even us Christians, maybe we, we don't think about Jesus' return nearly, nearly, nearly enough. Maybe it seems irrelevant to you. Maybe you plan on dying. doesn't seem like he's going to come back before you die. And so you think about death and what that will look like and what that will feel like and how you'll experience that. But, but his return just seems some other place, some other time, and hence irrelevant for now. Or maybe you think about Jesus' return quite often, but for the wrong reasons. In certain Christian cultures, 
second coming, Jesus' return, end times to become an obsession. It's something to be studied and to get right and be precise about and draw out on a line, and maybe even a chart. I remember our family, when I was growing up as a kid, had this chart in the hallway, and it was everything that was going to happen in Revelation. It was a chart. It charted the whole thing in picture form. It's amazing. I don't know if it was accurate, but it was amazing. <laughs> maybe that's you. Maybe you just love to study it, if not debate it. It's a hobby horse and a hobby. But does it have spiritual value to you? It's not the same thing. You can not neglect it, but not neglect it for the wrong reasons. Maybe you grew up in that kind of church. Like I said, I did. Every third sermon at my church when I was a kid was about the rapture or the antichrist or what the mark of the beast was going to be. Maybe you grew up in one of those kind of churches, but as you got older, you got tired of it. And maybe now you never really Think about Jesus and his return, the second coming, the end of the ages. Or maybe you're in another category. Maybe you hear the second coming. But if I said, it's going to happen tomorrow, you'd think, oh, crap. Hope I make it. <laughs> really? Well, I better go read my Bible, pray, show them I'm earnest and serious Maybe you'd think, oh, if it happens tomorrow, well, I guess I can't get out of it, but oh, bummer. You know, that's sad because I had a great week planned. Well, what we need is true belief in and a longing for the return of Jesus. We need the New Testament model. So let me just list some verses for you. A stack of verses, which is really just a brief sampling of verses in the New Testament about Jesus' return. It is practically on every page of our Bibles in, in worded with such great, hope-giving, rich language. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 7, Paul says there, the Christian life is kind of like this. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's one way of describing the Christian life. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We wait. Or in Philippians 3, he says, Our citizenship is already in heaven, and from heaven we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform these lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. That's what we wait for. That's what we long for. Colossians 3, he says, When Christ, who is your life, appears... You'll appear with him in glory. He encouraged the Thessalonica church like this. Chapter 4, verse 16. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. When's the last time you've encouraged a brother or sister, or kids or spouse? When's the last time you've encouraged yourself with the reality, the promise of Jesus' coming? And you thought about it. You thought of what it would be like. You imagined it. You you described it to yourself or with biblical terms. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1, One day the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, 
when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at at all who have believed. We will see him. We will marvel at him. And so now we love the thought of his appearing. That's what Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will award not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The final crown of salvation comes to those who love his appearing. That's what the writer of Hebrews also says. Chapter 9, verse 28. Christ will appear a second time to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. It's what Christians do. They wait and they long for Jesus' return. It's a major theme in Peter's letters. We saw in 1 Peter 1, verse 4, we have an inheritance that's kept in heaven for us, and we're being guarded now through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. That's talking about Jesus' return. Peter talks about it again in verse 7. We want our faith to be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Then verse 13, our verse for today, talks about the second coming. Set your hope fully on this. Verse 17, we'll also talk about that. That's just in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Eleven times in this letter, Peter talks about Jesus' return. And he writes a second letter, 2 Peter. It has three chapters. A whole chapter is devoted to it. You think it's important? Focus on the second coming but specifically focus on more grace that comes to us with Jesus' return. That's what Peter says in verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you when he comes back. The grace? We get more grace? How? Aren't we already completely forgiven? Yes, that's settled. That's settled. But there are more promises still to come. When he returns... We'll be free from sin. These bodies will be changed. That was in one of the verses I just read. When he comes back, so much of our salvation is transformed to the nth degree. It's taken up to a heavenly realm, literally. So, we get more grace. We want more grace. We want that grace. We want his grace to have that final victory that final step of completion. It's part of why Jesus is coming back. And it's already being brought to you, Peter says. That's literally what it says in the Greek. This grace, which is being brought to you, it's already on its way. It's like being in a dark tunnel, standing on railroad tracks, and it's pitch black until you see this little dot of light. If you're in a dark tunnel on tracks, you know exactly what that means. And it's not a good thing, right? He's not going to swerve. He's not going to turn. It's, it's coming. It's being revealed. Well, with Jesus, it's a good thing for Christians. Grace is this light. We see it. We see it through the eyes of faith, and it's coming. We don't know how long it'll take, but it's there, and it's coming. It is already being brought to you. It's inevitable. Focus on that grace that's to come. Focus on getting more of Jesus. 
We get more of Jesus when Jesus returns. For a second time now, Peter has used this phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's not just that we get more grace, or we get done with sin, or there's no more sickness, or we get transformed bodies when Jesus returns. We get him when he returns. It's revealed. In fact, the Greek word for this revelation of Jesus Christ, it's the Greek word apocalypse. That sound like any English word you've heard before? Apocalypse. Oh, many of us probably think of apocalypse as the doomsday, the end of the world. You know, fire, pestilence, wars, famines, earthquakes, devastation. Well, we Christians are a weird bunch because we smile at the apocalypse. Oh, some big things may happen. But Jesus is coming back, and he's our rescue. He's our shepherd. He's our king. He's good, and we want to see him. The end of the day will be a revealing of him and who he is. And that's why every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. He will be revealed. Some will acknowledge who he is apart from faith and worship to their doom. And others, we Christians, will see him and we will rejoice like we've never rejoiced before. Remember earlier Peter said, verse 8, we don't now see him, but we still rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. We don't see him now, but we still rejoice in a crazy way. And how much more crazy will it be when he returns and we see him? This is our longing. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 says that now, in this age, we see in a mirror dimly. He's talking about the word of God, I believe. In those days, a mirror wasn't quite as clear as the mirrors we have today. It'd be like chrome or uh, very polished uh, stainless steel, something like that. You could see a reflection, but it wasn't a perfect reflection. And Paul says the word of God is like that. It's perfect, don't misunderstand, it's perfect, but it's limited in its capacity to communicate who God is. God is infinite, and these are just words. It's not him. We see in a mirror dimly, but one day, face to face, now we know in part, then we shall know fully. So hope like this, hope is like that period between engagement and the wedding day. I hope you had a great engagement. I hope it was all happy for you. I hope you didn't have any doubts. I didn't. I loved it. I wanted more to come. I knew that this period was... It was a time of waiting, but what was ahead was certain. It was already settled. Oh, I know some engagements get broken off, but if you have a good engagement, you don't think that it's going to get broken off, right? No one goes into the engagement saying, eh, we'll see. Hopefully not. So, like that period before the wedding, you know the wedding's coming. It's a consuming thought in your mind. It can't come soon enough. No surprise that in Matthew 25, Jesus said that his disciples should wait for his return like a soon-to-be bride is waiting for her groom. 
Do you long for his coming like that? Now, on one level, the answer for all of us in here is no, because we don't long for it enough. But there are other ways of answering that. Do you long for his coming? If you say no, it's possible that you haven't been born again. You don't long for above because you haven't been born from above. You maybe look at Jesus as a get-out-of-hell card or someone that's helping you do things a little bit better, helping you get out of some jams here or there. But it's also possible that we've been born again and we're massively missing this all-important therefore. We're living in verses 1 through 12, enjoying the grace that's ours and not panting for the grace that's to be revealed when Jesus returns. We're not panting for Jesus. So secondly, there's an action of hope here that we've got to talk about. Set it. Verse 13 says, set your hope fully on the grace that's to be revealed. Set your hope fully on his coming. It's a command. Does it seem odd to you that hope is something that it would be commanded? Maybe you think hope is like an emotion. It's a mindset. You either have it or you don't have it. I know I should have more of it, but I don't know how to get more of it. Kind of like any emotion. It doesn't seem right that God commands it. But he does all over the place. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. We are commanded to have certain emotions fitting in response to the grace that God has given us in Jesus. In Jesus. We're to hope. That's one of them. We're to grow in our hope. The picture is setting it. So we should set it firmly. Put it down in that place in a focused way on the coming of Jesus and his return. And all that means, set it firmly there. We're to grow in setting it firmly there. I mean, ideally, we would set it there firmly and it would just stay there. But we're a distracted people. We're a forgetful people. So we have to keep setting it firmly and in a focused way on Jesus. It's a pursuit. It's a fight. It means we're to cultivate hope. We're to grow in hope. We're to have more joyful anticipation and expectation of his return this year than we did last year. That's not easy. That takes effort. That takes effort because Jesus' return is not placed before our eyes like everything else around us. You see, the world is constantly training us to set our hope here and to set our hope there. And you don't have to go out of your way to to get that message, do you? It's just there. It's everywhere. But the coming of Jesus, unless you read the Bible, unless you bring it up from the back pocket of your mind to the forefront of your mind routinely and consciously, unless we talk about it more as a church and encourage each other with these words, it's just going to be in the back pocket of our minds, behind the scenes. We're to set it fully on Jesus' return. Set it firmly, in a focused way. Set it fully there. Put all your eggs into this basket. Make this your biggest hope 
in some ways, your only hope. I know we hope in other things. We all do. Maybe you set your hope in a job, a resume, an investment, an education, hard work, a skill, good looks. Maybe you set your hope in mom and dad. Maybe you set your hope on your kids. Maybe you set your hope on on a sport, in a sport for your kids. Maybe you set your hope from time to time like I do. So silly. Set your hope on a professional sports team, right? I mean, how many of you have a team and you ride out a season on this team? And once in a billion years, your team wins it all. But then there's the hangover afterwards, like, well, they won. I thought I'd feel a little bit happier. Well, I guess I'll enjoy this for the summer. We set our hope on such silly things. In, in many of these, none of these, in a sense, are wrong or sinful, but they can all be empty hopes. And we know that from experience. We all know disappointment. We all know disenchantment. Even the world knows to shake its head at Michael Jordan in these days of his post-retirement. Have you been following that story of his crumbling facade? That slow train wreck of an ego, the emptiness of life for arguably the greatest basketball player to have ever played. Our culture is constantly training us to set our hope on all kinds of empty, futile, temporary, weak things. We must train our minds to focus on and set our hope on that which isn't temporary, but which is eternal. It's a constant, conscious choice. So set it. Set it and keep setting it. But thirdly, Peter gives us a strategy for this hope. A strategy? The mind. The verse begins with two different word pictures, both related to the mind. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. That's how, or part of the strategy for setting your hope fully on the grace that's to be revealed in Jesus and his coming. First, a ready-mindedness. Ready-mindedness, he says, preparing your minds for action. Now, literally in the Greek, it's a, a different kind of phrase, one we don't get in English so easily, at least in our time today. What he really says is, having girded up the loins of your mind. I think the King James has that in Almost all new modern translations don't have it. It's a common thing in Bible translation to do this kind of thing where if it's an old ancient saying that we wouldn't get, they'll put the words in the meaning of that saying rather than give us the saying. And that's probably the best way of doing it. But when we're studying it, teaching it, or preaching it, we should talk about the old ancient saying and what it means and, and how it applies to us today. You know, probably in Bible times, men wore long robes. Of course you know it. You've seen kids' Christmas plays, right? <laughs> what you probably don't know is that to do work or to run, you'd have this long encumbering thing, so you would pick it up and tuck it in your belt. Take the end of it, put it in your belt, and that was girding up your loins. It's a saying. Now, this saying is used all through Scripture. It's not always with the same language, though, so you can't always tell. But here are two examples. 
Exodus 12, as they're preparing for the Passover, God tells the Israelites, In this manner shall you eat the Passover with your belt fastened. And this isn't a prohibition against unbuckling your belt at Thanksgiving time. It means with your loins girded up, the the edge of your robe tucked in your belt, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste because you got to be ready. You don't know when he's going to say, go, go on, get, let's get out of here. In Luke 12, Jesus says we should stay dressed for action girding the loins of our minds. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning like men who are waiting for their master to come. Be ready. Ready for action. Today we might say things like, get ready to roll up your sleeves. And if that's in the context of work, that means, okay, we're, we're going we're gonna to work now. We're going to sweat now. We might get our hands dirty. But it even has stronger connotations if you're in a back alley. And some guy's staring you down, and he says, roll up your sleeves. And he's doing the same. That's a fight coming, right? Roll up your sleeves. There's something heavy about that. In a less heavy way, I mean, as runners prepare for a race, you know, right? As they put their feet on the blocks, someone says, on your marks, get set, right? And that's sort of like girding up your loins. It's a saying to prepare. Like a a race car driver might say, all right, let's buckle up. Buckle up. Or remember that uh, Sylvester Stallone movie in the 80s where he was a, a truck-driving arm wrestler? And before he would lock arms with some dude, what'd he do? He always turned his hat backwards. So cool. <laughs> you know, that was like a, a symbol of intensity, a different person now. There's seriousness about this. There's a mission. Hat is backwards. What it means for us, the saying and the similar sayings we have today, we should be ready for what's ahead. It's forward-looking to have your mind girded up like this. It's watching the horizon for Jesus' return and being ready to go whenever he calls. It's a posture of activity. It implies work. Get to work, rolling up your sleeves. It also implies we should be free from entanglements. That's the whole reason why they would pull the robe up so you don't get caught up, so you don't get tripped. So Peter, I think, is implying don't get tripped up by, say, persecution. Don't get tripped up by suffering like some strange thing were happening to you. And get this, Peter says we should live like this. Live like this. All these examples I've used, the biblical one, the ones more modern today, they were all for a moment in time. No construction worker comes home with his tool belt on his waist and sits down for dinner at the kitchen table with his tool belt on. You wear a tool belt for a time. No race car driver somehow has a seat on his back and he's always buckled in. You buckle up for a time, for a purpose, a season, a thing. Well, Peter's saying the same thing, but he's saying, do this all the time. You live on the starting blocks. You live buckled up. You live, Christian, with your sleeves rolled up. That's heavy. There's a second word picture for strategy that shows us it's heavy. Sober-mindedness. Sober-mindedness. 
being sober-minded, he said. And that's not a command to completely abstain from alcohol, in my opinion. I think he's given us another metaphor, another word picture. So think through the effects of drunkenness and then turn it on its ear. That's what he means by sober-mindedness, the opposite of drunkenness. He means be serious. Drunks are hopeless jokers, right? They just goof off. Drunks are not alert. Be alert. Be clear-headed in your thinking. Be thoughtful in your thinking. Be purposeful and intentional and in control of your mind. Be proactive in your thinking, not reactive in your thinking. Be focused. Not worked up easily, but steady. Be a steady eddy in your mind. Peter will later talk about sober-mindedness a couple other times. Chapter 4, verse 7, he says, Be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. 1 Peter 5, 8, he says, Be sober-minded because the devil is like a roaring lion prowling on someone to devour. But of course, here in verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, Be sober-minded for the sake of putting hope, all your hope, fully fixed hope, on Jesus' return. We have loose brains. They don't go there often. Our brains, as I said, don't go to Jesus' return easily or often. We are so often pulled along in our thoughts instead of pulling our thoughts along. One danger of our brave new world is that we look proactive in our web surfing and our social media. It looks like we're in control. All the clicking and scrolling looks like it's purposeful. But the only real decision we made was to check email once again or, you know, check Facebook again. After that, it's mindless and it's mind-numbing. I'm saying you shouldn't do it, but we should realize the difference between reactive thinking and proactive thinking and realize that Peter is calling us to proactive thinking. And so if we don't work at this thing of setting our hope fully on Jesus' return, we will never even think about it, let alone set our hope in it. We have to discipline ourselves to preach to ourselves. Remember that? Preach to yourself. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. Preach that to yourself. And put your hope, Peter would say, in his return. The way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4 is, we don't look at the things which are temporary and things which are seen we look at the things which are eternal look at them stare at them gaze upon them fix your thoughts and affections on them look at the things which are unseen that's such curious language isn't it look at things which are unseen but we look with the eyes of faith we look we stare we set our minds on the things that are above, not things that are on the earth. Why? Why? Because this world is not our home. Because we're a people between two worlds. Because our Savior died for us and he's living. And he's our Savior, our King, our Shepherd. He's God. He's our friend. We long for more of him like a bride-to-be waiting for her groom. And we don't even know how glorious his coming will be. 
What we have now is a, a little drop compared to an ocean of what's to come. Heaven and earth will be united. I don't even know what that means. But it's going to be awesome. Heaven and earth are one. He's going to make all things new. What do you mean? How new? I don't know. Really new. What's it mean? I don't know. It's going to be good, though. He's going to restore all things. What? What's that mean? It's going to be good. Really good. You can't comprehend it. If he told you, your head would blow up. In all this for hell-deserving sinners, marvel at the grace of God. Marvel at his goodness to give us his word, to give us the church, give us each other. Marvel at his goodness to give us his spirit. Marvel at his goodness that his plan is as good as done. Everything's sure. It's rock solid. There's nothing else like this in this world. Everything else is uncertain and fleeting. At best, the best things down here on a human plane are like a flicker of light compared to what is God himself in his glory. Think much. Set your hope often on Jesus' return. That will help us from clinging too tightly to this world, clinging too tightly to stuff even clinging too tightly to our very own lives and how long we have. Thinking much on Jesus' return will keep us from worry. It'll help us fight restlessness and disappointment. Setting our hope in his coming will help us respond appropriately to grave injustices, feelings of emptiness, futility, seen once again it'll keep you from putting your hope in the government I know the government's doing a pretty good job of that themselves but setting your hope on the grace that's been revealed in Jesus buoys you up while our government does wacky wacky stuff it's an act of worship it's sin crushing it's holiness motivating its perspective gaining in some ways watching for jesus is simply tapping into the fuller reality around us that we can't see but will be seen someday we do this thing setting our hope fully on jesus's return because it's commanded because jesus wants us to and it's what christians do he's coming back for those who love his appearing. Let me end with a quote from Richard Baxter, a Puritan, who wrote this 350 years ago. He says, If there be so certain and glorious a heavenly rest for the saints, why is there no more aggressive seeking after it? One would think if a man did but hear such unspeakable glory to be obtained and believe that he heard it to be true... He should vehemently desire for it and should almost forget to eat or drink and should care for nothing else and speak of and inquire after nothing else but how to get this treasure. And yet we people hear it daily, profess to believe it as a fundamental article of our faith, and yet so little think on it or labor for it as if we've never heard of any such thing. 
May it not be so. May we be a people who long for his appearing.